This is the Calvary Bible Church podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Good morning, Calvary Bible Church in Boulder and Erie and Thornton. We're glad you're with us. And for those of you who used to attend Calvary and you're all around the country letting us know that you're tuning in, we're glad you're with us too. And maybe you joined us today for the very first time. Somebody shared a link with you and you're tuning in for a church service online. We're really glad you're here. And I think it's going to be a great morning for you. At least we've prayed for you that it'll be a great time for us to be together. We're going to turn to the Bible in just a minute. But all this week we've been watching the news and watching on line and newspapers. And a friend of mine, John, sent me a list of the key buzzwords that are hitting all the headlines in newspapers and news stories across the country in the last week. Here's the list of key buzzwords from the media. Havoc, doom, shutdown, lifeline, death toll, afraid, dead, descend, crippled, Worries, plummet, tumbles, unsteady, devastates, worst case scenario, crisis. How's that for a key list? Man, filled with joy. Aren't you glad you came to church today? If you read the newspapers only or just watch the news, those are going to be the themes that you hear again and again and again. But we look through the first chapter of Philippians. And we pulled out our own list of buzzwords from Philippians chapter 1 from the Apostle Paul, which he wrote while he was in prison, chained to the wall under constant supervision by Roman guards. And these were his key words in Philippians 1. Grace, peace, joy, confident, bold, prayer, rejoice, deliverance, Filled with the fruit of righteousness, abounding love, progress in the faith, full of courage, glory in Christ, standing firm, one mind, one spirit, not frightened in anything, believing in Christ. Now that is a different list. And it begs the question, what creates a perspective that is so different between what you hear in the newspaper and news media And what you hear in the Bible from an apostle who was in similarly dire circumstances, I would suggest to you that one of the things we've always said is that you have to understand that when the Bible speaks, it speaks in a way that helps us interpret our circumstances. And so we always say that we want to see our circumstances wherever we are through the lens of understanding biblical truth. And we would never want to switch it around and say, I understand the Bible in this way because my circumstances are this, so God must mean this. Part of what Paul shows us is that when you have God's truth and you have it right in front of you, it creates a better lens for our circumstances. And today's text in Philippians chapter 1 has one particularly key verse. It's verse 21, which creates the lens that we're going to begin looking through it. There, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, if you've been around the church for a long time, uh, you probably know that verse as one of our big flag verses. Uh, It's a big marker for the Christian to live as Christ and to die is gain. 
if you're not new to the church, uh, or if you are new to the church, if you haven't been around for a while, uh, that's probably sounds a little from, like unfamiliar. It seems a little odd. Like, what does it mean to live as Christ and to die as gain? And so we want to be able to unpack this lens that was evident for Paul, uh, the source of his hope, so that you too might understand it more fully and embrace it to experience some of its joy. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the story in verse 18, and we're going to read through 26. So if you got your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to start in the latter part of 18, where Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. Remind yourself, as, as Tom said, that, that Paul's in prison. He's experiencing some hard circumstances. But last week, we saw that he was giving hope to the Philippian church, that God is still on the move and still active, that God himself will redeem these days and actually bring forth good for the gospel, for the kingdom, for others. And it's a source of his joy. He concludes that section by talking about other preachers that are actually preaching from envy and rivalry, some with pretense. I mean, these are almost hypocritical preachers that are preaching Christ. But he sees that even in the midst of that, that Christ is being proclaimed and it's a source of joy for him. Even these pastors that are preaching to maybe inflict more wounds on Paul, Paul says, that's okay. If Christ is preached, I rejoice. And so even though his circumstances are dire, the attitude that Paul has is rejoicing. And so he says, yes, I will rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So, so Paul sets up this situation that's immediate for him, life or death. And he lives in those two worlds, either I'm gonna live or I'm gonna die. And for us, we often think about our living. And in today's present circumstances, we're probably more aware of our dying, but those are the kind of the two options. And so what do you see in this text as kind of sources of, of Paul's hope and joy uh, in the midst of those two worlds of whether I live or I die, it's for Christ. Let's start with uh, the first part. Uh, for me to live is Christ. So we'll talk about the living and then we'll talk about the dying. Um, for me to live is Christ. It's a very simple statement, but I think it means for Paul, for me to live is to live primarily and singularly with Christ in my vision at first. And what we would always want to do in a text like this is look at that, which may be the key statement, and then see if we can find some supporting evidence in the context that would say, okay, if living is living for Christ, what's the evidence in this text that looks like a Christ-exalting life? For me to live as Christ, in a sense, is to bring Christ right into the center of my life and say, he's the centerpiece. He's more important than any other dimension of my life. I have a wife. 
I have children. I have a job. I have hobbies. I like to fly fish and golf. I have a truck. I have friends. But all of those find their place um, alongside and under the rank of, for me to live first and foremost, is Christ. St. Patrick was an old saint, and he had a beautiful prayer that he would pray when he would um, communicate with others and lead others. And this is what he coached them to pray. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I rise up. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the eyes of everyone who sees me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks about me, um, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks about me. It's a beautiful prayer, simply saying that Christ is my center, and he's the beginning part. So what in the text helps us see what a Christ-centered life might look like? I found three, beginning in verse 19, and I simply said that the first mark that Christ is my center is I am dependent upon God in a life of prayer. Dependence on God in a life of prayer. So Paul begins verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, it's going to result in my deliverance. He highlights prayer, this time from the Philippians, for him. But earlier in verse 3, he has already said, I thank my God in every remembrance of you, making mention of you always in my prayers, showing that prayer is a saturating practice for him because prayer is a means of bringing Christ to every circumstance. And then again in verse um, 11 through 9, we looked at last week, um, my prayer for you is that your love would abound more and more, and he's praying for their spiritual growth. And I just see three references to prayer in Philippians chapter 1 that are one of the ways Paul centers his life around Christ. For me to live is Christ, so I talk to him a lot in prayer. Now I realize that you might hear this idea that prayer is a mark of a Christ-centered life and say, I, I don't pray that much. And so I want to help you with three prayers that would be really easy for you to pray, especially if you're just getting... Uh, sort of reinitiated to this whole spiritual pursuit of knowing Jesus and learning how to talk to God. He invites us to pray all the time. In fact, Jesus said, I want you to persist in prayer. Pray without ceasing. So one of the prayers you could pray is simply this. Lord Jesus, my Savior, have mercy on me. How simple is that? It's just a request to God. Lord Jesus, would you have mercy on me? I know I've blown it in my life. I have to pray this a lot. I have to pray, Lord, will you forgive me? I know I haven't responded in the way I, I wished I had or the way that might honor you. So, Lord Jesus, have mercy. It's a way to, to affect God's forgiveness in our life. A second simple prayer is, Lord, help. How simple is that? If you're just learning how to pray, Lord, help is a great prayer. Because the Lord delights to help the brokenhearted. And he's near to those who are crushed in spirit and who are going through difficult times. And he says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. I will help you. It's a beautiful promise of Jesus. So it's a prayer you can pray. Lord, help me. 
And maybe the third prayer you could pray in developing a life of prayer and keeping your life centered in Jesus is, Lord, will you show me who you are? Jesus promised that he would come and make his dwelling in us and he would reveal himself to us. And so I want to encourage you as you're going through these days, don't let prayer be something that you wished you had developed when it's all over. Do it now. Develop that life of prayer. Lord, have mercy. Lord, help me. Lord, show me who you are. That's one of the key marks of a life centered in Jesus. The second one I would suggest is a life that's centered in Jesus demonstrates a loving service to other people. So you can see, Paul says, I really hope I get out. I really believe I'm going to be delivered from these circumstances. And when that happens, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to the Philippian church and I'm going to help you. So he says in verse 22, if I do keep living, that's one of my choices, it's going to mean fruitful service. I'm going to be working for the kingdom. And then verse 23 Uh, Verse 25, he says, I know that I will remain and continue for all of your progress and joy and faith. I'm going to stay on, hopefully, and when I do get out of this prison, the one thing I want to do is serve other people. Because really a mark that Jesus gave us, a a life centered in Jesus, is loving other people, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about Jesus with the disciples, showing them, modeling for them what service looks like. Uh, So much today we hear, make sure you wash your hands. And I think Paul is here reminding us, make sure you're washing other people's feet. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Wash your hands and wash others' feet. So that's that's two marks, is this life of prayer and uh, the service of others, which is marked by being in Christ. It makes me think of his other letters that he's written to other churches, reminding him of the same thing, that his life is hidden in Christ. Uh, It makes me think of his letter to the Galatians where he says, I have died and now I live in Christ. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in Christ. Um, I think about the letter to the Colossians, another church where he says, my life is hidden with Christ. And this is exactly what Paul is pointing out here to another church, that our life is in Christ in a prayer and in our service. What's this third way that you see modeled by Paul? So it's kind of hidden in uh, verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 23, when he's contemplating the two options that are available to him. I'm I'm going to live and be released, and I'm going to go love people and serve the kingdom. But he says, um, but my desire is the other option. My My desire is the other option, which is to depart from this life and go and be with Christ, which is very much better And I just get a glimpse there that Paul's whole perspective is not only of this world, but he's always thinking of heaven and eternity. He's thinking of the next realm. He's thinking of going to be with Christ. We're absent from Christ now, and we're present in our body. But one day, when we die, we'll be absent from the body and present with Christ. And Paul's analysis was, that's going to be better than anything in this life. And it's hard for us to imagine that, but I I think... What he's saying is the way to live a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting life is to be thinking not only of what's happening here, but to be thinking of heaven. Eyes on Jesus, we said a couple weeks ago. And and here it is, eyes on heaven. Um, 
If you be raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's a really compelling idea and very hard to do in in our life to be thinking with heaven in mind, but it helps shape Paul's idea that I want to be a, a person who prays, a person who serves others, and a person who's thinking of eternity so that I see my circumstances with eternity in perspective. You know, it's funny, we started with the headlines today, and a lot of those headlines have led people to think about the times when things will get normal again. Uh, we were on a phone call this week with other clergy uh, talking to the governor, and the governor kept repeating, uh, we, just can't, we, we can't wait uh, for it to happen soon enough that all things would become normal again. All things become normal again. And I think in this perspective of what Christ is doing is we're not waiting for all things to become normal again. What we're longing for is all things to be made new, is the, the work of Jesus Christ to make all things new, not normal and try to get back to something, but forward thinking of what God is doing with history and what God will ultimately do in all of this. Yeah. But it seems like Paul is, is pretty convinced and compelled of who Christ is. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you are. Uh, what is it that compels you about Christ? Yeah. So, I, I told you earlier that I got this letter this week from a young man who sent me an email with six questions in it. And one of the questions, uh, he said, I've been trying to interact with other people who have faith in Jesus who are older than me, and I need to ask you the question. He said, um, what do you personally find compelling about Jesus? And I loved that question, and I wrote him an answer, and I sort of elaborated in my mind for this morning. And... I think that is what answers, for me, the question, why should I live for Christ? Why is, to me, living Christ? And I, when I wrote in my answer, I said, um, I think I'm most compelled by Jesus for a number of reasons. One is his life. Jesus lived his life um, as an excellent teacher, uh, the best ever, and people flocked to him to hear him. He also went about doing good and healing and helping people. He was uh, one who would step in and rescue someone. Um, There's a story in the Gospels of him rescuing someone who had been wrecked with sexual immorality and marriages upon marriages, and he just entered in with compassion and gave relief to them. What's not to love about someone as compelling as that who loves people right where they are and then gives them a hand and forgives them and leads them on to a better life. Um, It's beautiful. But in addition to his life, it was his death. And his death is compelling more than any other death in the history of anyone in the world. Um, His commitment on my behalf to come into this world and um, though he had not committed any sin in his life, he went to the cross to bear the burden of sinners like me. And he went to the cross and died in my place as my substitute and then offers me through his death forgiveness of my sins. And then he rose again on the third day and he rose again and was seen by hundreds of people and then he ascended into heaven and from heaven he he is now interceding for us on our behalf. I just think his willing sacrifice on behalf of sinners like me and then saying to me, I could be forgiven and I could have a place in heaven, that's pretty compelling because of his death. Both of those things were things that he did. He lived a life and then he died a death and... uh, Those are amazing. 
But perhaps most compelling to me is not what he did, but who he is. And when you understand who Jesus is, then it makes sense that for me to live as Christ would make sense. And, and so who is this Jesus? Well, he is God's son, the only begotten son of God. He is eternal. He's everlasting. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere present. He is an advocate for people in need. He's the first, he's the last, he's the beginning, he's the end, the Alpha and Omega. He comes alongside to help those who will call upon him. He's the forgiver of sinners and the defender of those who are accused. He's the creator of all the universe. He made everything that has been made. Apart from him, nothing that is made, has been made, was made. He sustains it all. He holds it all together and he is the one who's going to come and judge the living and the dead. He now lives in heaven and is going to come back and return. And he's the one before every knee will bow and say to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. I mean, what's not compelling about that? And so when you see Jesus in that way, and he's not just a word that you use when you're upset, but he really is all of that. Then you can hear Paul say, for me to live is for that man, for that God. I live for him. I have all these other things. But for me to live is Christ, and those things find their place in it. Yeah. I, I think he perfectly says in this phrase, to live is Christ. You know, actually, it's, it's easy to forget you know, what, what Paul's doing you know, in his text. As it's written in English. But remember, he's writing to a Roman audience, the Roman Empire. There's this you know, flourishment of being in the Roman Empire, uh, how great it is to be a Roman citizen. And there's this cliche saying in the Roman Empire, life is good, zen Christos, life is good. We have a brand uh, of, of clothing, you can just print it on, life is good, people wear that around. Man, it's great to be alive in America. It's great to be a Roman citizen. And Paul actually takes this cliche saying, zen Christos, and phrases our sentence right here, zen Christos, life is Christ. So he takes a cliche of life is good. He goes, no, no, life is Christ. Once you see who Christ is in all of that, life is Christ. And to be outside Christ is to be outside life. And so it kind of moves from, if I'm gonna live, I wanna live for Christ, with Christ. And if I'm gonna die, I wanna die in Christ. And so Paul sees this transition from living to dying is actually a gain. Now, death is not a gain for Paul because he thinks death is good. You know, he, he points out that death is actually a, an enemy. When he's writing to the church in Corinth, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 26, he says, the last enemy to be, to be destroyed will be death. And so it's not as though death is a gain because death is good. No, not at all. He's not fatalistic. Death is good because it brings Paul into a deeper union with Christ. And so if you see right here in verse 23, it says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That in our death, we are united with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And so if Christ is all of that, he's worth living for, then to be in union with him after death, perfect union, you are in the presence of the, the fullness and the foreverness of true joy. I think the reason Paul's able to keep his joy, the fact that he opens up saying, rejoice, he's still in attitude of joy, is because Paul hasn't been separated from the source of his joy. Now, 
you think about this, Paul's in prison, he's away from family, he's away from friends, he's away from his comforts, he's away from some of those elements or expressions of joy that he's had. But Paul has learned that those expressions that he has found great joy in um, were only expressions of the source of joy. So later on, as he writes to the Philippians, he tells them, you know, all those expressions, those accolades and accomplishments that brought me joy, compared to the source of joy, being with Christ, I, I look at them and they look like rubbish. They're nothing. And I think about that where he hasn't been separated from the source of his joy. I think about how, you know, often I love backpacking. I know you love fly fishing, camping in the woods, and sometimes you're looking for fresh water and it's hard to find. And so you find a small stream and it takes a little while, but you can get enough fresh water into your Nalgene uh, to continue to preserve life. But if you follow that small stream and you're backpacking up and you find the fountainhead, the source how, how great it is to think, man, this is the, the, the source of life. This is the fountainhead. I could set up camp here and live here. I think that's what Paul's saying. It's all these other small expressions of joy that we have in life. That's, a, that's all they are is expressions of a greater joy, which is the source of being with Christ. And so death is gain, not because death is good, but because for the Christian, death will bring us to the fountainhead of our source of all life, of joy that we will live in the fullness and foreverness of pleasure and joy in Christ forever. And so I think that's one of our challenges today is maybe the absence of joy in your life is because you've been separated from the source of your joys. And you just have to recalibrate and say, okay, what was bringing me joy? And was that ultimate full foreverness of joy? Was this simply an expression that helps me see a deeper, greater joy, the source of these expressions, which is Christ himself? And at these times, I'm able to reflect and say, okay, I really enjoy these things. They make life more enjoyable, but it's not the full expression. And here Paul's saying, okay, even if I'm in prison, I can rejoice because I haven't been separated from the source of my joy. Yeah, another way to think about it is if you just start naming some of those joys. If for me to live is my job or for me to live is camping or fishing or money and I die, I lose, right? Yeah. But if for me to live is Christ and I die, it's gain and that's sweet. Reminds me of Jim Elliott, the great missionary. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Yeah, amen. So all of this sort of winds down, and the wind down um, goes on to verse 27 and the rest of the way, sort of a therefore, how do you operationalize living for Christ so death is gain? Live a life worthy of Christ. Um, persevere, strive, have courage, pray for grace, and, and that's the way Paul wraps that up. It's a beautiful picture of what it looks like for the Philippian church to be continually living with Christ in union together. Be of one mind, he says, that you would stand strong, that you would strive, and that you'd be in unity. And this is the way that we live fearlessly, courageously right. for Christ. This is what we pray for you, that you'll persevere in oneness and um, that Christ will be center. Should we pray? Father, thank you so much for the privilege of opening your word together, and we pray that the Holy Spirit will bring these truths to bear in our lives. We want Christ to be the center of our life, and we do not want to be um, drawn away to lesser things, but those lesser things find their place with Christ at the center. 
Give grace to all of us that we would call upon you and draw near to you. Fill our lives with your joy and your presence in these days. And give us a perspective that would let us see our circumstances even as you do. To you be glory in our lives and the life of the church. We pray together. Help us all as we travel through these challenging days to see Christ in us, with us, around us, on every side. To him be glory, we pray. Amen.